Well, welcome everybody to Downtown Harbor Church. My name is John. I am the lead pastor around here. Appreciate you guys coming on out. And when I say coming on out, I mean sitting on your couch and watching from home. But hey, before we go any further, can we just stop and just look around at what's going on here? This look at, look at the old boy. All right, what what's going on? Why are we doing this? Why all of a sudden do you see music? Why all of a sudden do you see new videos and and me in a studio? So. This week at DHC, the team got together. We, we were talking with the board of trustees and we have made a decision that perhaps you guys have also sort of figured out that when it comes to the coronavirus, nobody knows anything. It's just, I mean, from the highest office to the lowest one, it just seems like nobody really has any clue what's happening with this virus. And in March, you know, when we shut down like the rest of the country, we figured 15 days, We'll flatten the curve a little bit. We'll be back in there by, oh, I don't know, April. Maybe it was Easter, right? Then it wasn't Easter. Hopefully it'll be May. Eh, wasn't May. Then it was June. And when June came around, all of a sudden things were looking good. Things were looking up. Things were opening up. You can go to a restaurant. You can get a haircut. Churches all of a sudden started making plans about meeting again. It was a very exciting time. And all of a sudden, one of the big local churches in Fort Lauderdale, they said they were going to lead the charge. They were going to meet mid-July. And, and we were hoping, okay, August, maybe we can get in the music. And then the bottom dropped out. And now you've got things, it's like 15,000 cases a day and, and it's out of control. And, and we just, we don't know what's happening. And so we as a church made this decision that we can no longer live in what we'll call triage mode. Meaning, meaning filming me at my table, hoping that just maybe, just maybe we'll get in next week. Uh, just two more weeks and we'll get in. So we made a decision that for the foreseeable future, because we don't know when the world's gonna open back up for church, for the foreseeable future, we are gonna put all of our resources into online church. We are gonna do our very best to recreate what you once knew. We're gonna try to make the old normal, the new normal to the best of our abilities. And so we're gonna start broadcasting at nine o'clock and 10.30. We're gonna have music. We got a couple of tricks up our sleeve coming in the upcoming weeks that I can't tell you about now that we're working on behind the scenes. But our goal is try to, to make this the most beneficial experience that you can have while we try to wait for this whole storm to pass by. With that being said, Today, we are kicking off a brand, oh, and by the way, before I forget, because I don't want to miss this, we got the whale, okay? I know there's all kinds of requests for the whale. Here he is. He will always be with us. I think even when we get back into that building, he'll be here with us. Um, I know you guys love that whale, so I don't want you to get distracted by that. Um, so today, we are kicking off a brand new series that we're going to be calling B.C., where the, for the next couple of weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at what happened before it all happened. Meaning, what happened before Jesus Christ hit the scene? Because here at DHC, one of the things that I don't want to say we pride ourselves on, but we put a heavy emphasis on is a practical application of the teachings of Jesus Christ. All right, And, and most of our time as a church, and, and really Christians in general, most of our time is spent looking in the Bible primarily at the New Testament, right? This is a Bible. We don't use these paper editions that much anymore, but this is what a Bible looks like. This is the New Testament. And if you want to dial down even more, Jesus' part is here. The foundation of our faith is found here, the gospel of Jesus Christ. But what about all this over here? What about the thousands of years that took place 
before Jesus put on human flesh and walked this earth. We want to take a look at those times. We want to make sure that we have a well-rounded spiritual education here at DHC. So for the next couple of weeks, we're going to dive into the Old Testament. We're going to take a look at key figures from the Old Testament. And, and the goal here, all right, the goal is not necessarily a practical application of the text, but rather we want you to know the stories. We want you to know these people's names. We want you to know their stories. We want you to know how God worked in their lives and how their lives and their actions and their faith contributed to this world and our story. And every week, we're going to take a look at a character, and we're going to learn more about who this person is, man or woman. It's it's going to be fantastic, I hope. It's going to be great. Um, But this week, we're going to kick off with a guy whose story is so amazing. Um, It's actually the longest story in the Bible, so we're going to give it two weeks. It's, it's an incredible story. I mean, outside of Jesus Christ, you got to say that. This is a, pretty much the greatest story in the entire Bible. So I want to introduce you to, for the very first time, for some of you at least, a man named Joseph. So this Joseph, he is not the um, father of Jesus Christ. This Joseph was born roughly 1,800 years B.C., before Christ. This is the man that was made famous in the Broadway production, Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, or is it Magical Dreamcoat? Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. It's, it's, it's a great story. So the big question is, why him? Why now? I mean, if we're going to go in the Old Testament, if we're going to look at things that happened from the very beginning, why don't we start with Adam and Eve? Why don't we start with, with the creation? Why Joseph? Well, I'll tell you why. Joseph's story, in my opinion, resonates with our story. Because right now, we got a lot going on. I mean, we, I mean, we, we are all, as a people, as a church, as a nation, as a world, we're going through a lot. There isn't a lot of confusion going on out there. We, I mean, what's going to happen with COVID? What's going to happen with our health? What's going to happen with schools? Are kids going to be able to learn? Are we ever going to get back into a church building? Just, it's a tough time out there. And one of the things that Christians do when things are, are tough, when things are a little dark, when things are a little scary, one of the things that we say is that God's in control. God's got it. God, God, is, God is in control. And, and we sort of repeat ourselves. And as things get darker, we, we continue to say, you know what? God's got it. He's, he's in control of my life. He's, he's, he's got a plan for all this. And the reason we lean on that promise is because of, of a particular verse that's actually found in the New Testament. And it's an amazing promise. And it's an encouraging promise. And it's a confusing promise. And at times, it's actually a, a, a frustrating promise. It's Romans 8, 28. Take a look at what it says. It says, and we know. And I love that Paul says we know. It's just, we have the confidence. We just, it's just in us. We just understand it. We see it. We know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. It's an amazing verse. And if this is true, and I believe it is, we have no reason to be afraid. That no matter what is happening in your life, God's in control. And he's working it together for your good. Wow, I mean, that, that's a promise. You know what this verse really is, in my opinion? I think it's a promise of deliverance. It means that we serve a God that delivers his people. 
And deliverance is an amazing thing, but the thing about deliverance is that it's not deliverance until it's the 11th hour. I mean, you have to be delivered from something in order for it to be deliverance, some danger, some situation, some, some hardship. And when we are in the midst of these hardships, shall we say, because we can't see the future, because we don't know what's going to happen, because we don't know how God is going to work all of this mess together for our good, we have to live by faith and, and not by sight. So with that in mind, let me, let me ask you a question, just a hypothetical one. What would you do, right? What would you do if you were 100% certain that God was with you? I mean, if Romans 8, 28 is true and you believe this, what would you do in your life right now if you were 100% certain that God is with you? This question, you could even call it a filter through which you can view the world around you. It could change everything depending on how you answer it. I mean, it can change the way that you act. It can change the way that you react. It can change the way that you think. It can change the way that you perceive your situation. Joseph, who we're going to look at today, lived his life with 100% certainty that God was with him through the ups and through the downs. He is the embodiment of Romans 8, 28, and it is a phenomenal story. So with this question in mind, keep that in the back of your head as we dive into this great story. We're going to kick off. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 37. Um, we're going to read a lot of verses today. I'm also going to sort of um, just sort of paraphrase some verses so we can get through some of this content, but it's a great story. So we're kicking off in Genesis chapter 37, verse two. Here's what it says. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah, uh, and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Okay? So the dad's got a couple of wives. There are several brothers. And Joseph has now brought a bad report about those brothers to his dad. So now theologians look at this and they say, well, I mean, the, the theological term for what you see here, for what, for what Joseph is, is a tattletale. Okay, he's a tattletale. Now, some pastors look at this and they go, well, he's not a tattletale. You're, you're, you're really, you're, you're not seeing it properly. Joseph is an upright, moral man, as you're going to see. And he's not tattling on his brothers. No, this is, this is sort of a spiritual obligation that he has to, to keep his brothers on the right path. I don't buy that. Okay, he's a squealer, plain and simple. He's squealing, all right? It continues. Now, Israel, that's the dad. He also goes by the name Jacob. Israel loved Joseph more than any of the other sons because he had him born to him in his old age. And he made him an ornate coat. Now, depending on which translation you use, your Bible might say a colorful coat. This is that amazing technicolor dream coat that the play speaks of. And when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him. They could not speak a kind word to him. All right, so we've got a couple of issues going on in this story so far. Number one, the dad plays favorites. That's a problem, okay? I don't know if you're a parent out there. I am not, but it's like you never want to get into a situation where you as a parent are playing favorites with the kids. I mean, it's one thing for the siblings to suspect that, that one of their brothers or sisters might be the favorite. It's another thing for the father to actually say it. And then also to single that kid out by giving them a, a, a special gift. And let's talk about that gift, by the way, this coat. 
So 4,000 years ago when this coat was made, you have to realize that color was not only very expensive, it was very difficult to make. And so his brothers, their robes would probably be black. They, they probably might be brown. They, they might be white. Meanwhile, Joseph, right, he's strutting around looking like Kramer after hanging out with the wig master all day. And then this is, it's not his fault, right? I mean, he didn't go out and buy this coat. It was given to him. But the dad is clearly setting him up for failure. He's clearly setting him up for animosity. So the story continues. It says that Joseph had a dream. So let's pause and talk about this dream thing for a second, because this is a, a, a prominent storyline in Joseph's life. So Joseph had a spiritual gift when it came to these dreams. God gave him the ability to have prophetic dreams, meaning Joseph could actually see the future. He knew what was going to happen. He also had the ability to interpret dreams. And so one day, as verse 5 lets us know, Joseph had one of these dreams. And in this dream, God showed him that there would come a time in the future, he didn't know exactly when, but there was going to come a time in the future when his brothers would bow down before him. That there was going to come a time in the future when his brothers and his family, including his father, would bow down before him and he would reign over all of them. I mean, that is quite a dream. And when he told his brothers this dream, they hated him all the more. It's like, Joseph, my man, what are you doing? Why would you tell your brothers this dream? I mean, I picture the scene. It's like 7 a.m. Saturday morning, all right? His brother's around the breakfast table. These guys, I mean, these are burly guys. These guys are looking like Vikings. I mean, these are real shepherds, okay? And then you got Joseph coming down the steps looking like little Fo Lord Fonzelroy with that coat on, all right? And he's like, mm, my gosh, what a great sleep. Hey, funny story, by the way. Let me tell you about this dream, okay? Needless to say, mistakes were made. Can we agree on that? All right. So you got a dad who's playing favorites. You got brothers who are jealous. I mean, I don't fault them for that. And you got, you know, Joseph, who's a tattletale and who, who lacks, I would say, discretion when it comes to these dreams that, that God gives him. The story continues. The brothers, all by themselves, they're out tending the flock. They're about 50 miles away. The father asks Joseph, hey, would you go find your brothers? Just make sure they're okay and, and give me a report back on what they're doing. And of course, as we know, Joseph loves to give reports about his brothers. So he goes searching for them, and, and it takes a long time, and he finally spots them in the distance. Well, the brothers see him coming. They see that coat shimmering in the sun, and look at what they say. They say, here comes that dreamer. <laughs> here he comes, boys. All right? Come. Let's kill him. Whoa, what? Let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns. That's like a pit where you would put water. Let's throw him into one of the cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. And so when Joseph came to the brothers, they stripped him of his robe, that ornate robe he was wearing. They could not stand this robe. And they took him and they threw him into the cistern. And I love this next part. I mean, as they sat down to eat a meal. Okay, I'm sorry. They, you've just thrown your brother into a pit and now you're having sandwiches? What, what, what kind of family, what are we dealing with here? Talk about dysfunction. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices and balm, 
and myrrh, and they were on their way to take that stuff to Egypt. Now, this seems to be unnecessary detail, right? I mean, what do we, what do we care about what these camels are carrying? Well, we might not see anything here. This might just seem some of that extra detail that the Bible includes, but the original audience understood exactly what this was. These spices were used to embalm bodies. See, for the Jewish people, when they thought about Egypt, they thought about death. It was the land of the dead. It was the land of the graves. And so when the original author included this into the story, this was foreshadowing. This, I mean, this was a foreboding omen about what was to come for the Jewish people when it comes to Egypt. Continues, it says Judah, one of the brothers, said to his brothers, what will we gain? He's like, you know what? I'm thinking about this, guys. What will we gain if, our brother, if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay a hand on him. After all, he says. I mean, after all, he's our brother. I mean, our own flesh and blood. So what's funny is you look at how some theologians sort of interpret this here. And what they say about Judah is that here what he's doing is he's exercising mercy. They could have killed Joseph, but he exercised mercy and they just sold him into slavery instead. Let me tell you something. If this is your idea of mercy, spare me your mercy, okay? It's like, I, I don't think being sold into slavery is mercy. Sending me back home, that's merciful, all right? In my opinion, you know what I see here? They chickened out. I mean, these brothers had murder in their hearts. They had anger in their hearts. And when it came time to pull the trigger, you know what they couldn't do? Pull the trigger. And so under the guise of mercy, after, under the guise of, oh, after all, he's our brother, they sold him into slavery. Now, interesting side note, Judah here, Jesus actually comes from the line of Judah. I mean, you hear a story like this and you're going to see how upright and moral Joseph is. One would be led to believe that, oh, Jesus is going to come from his line. No, comes from this guy. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. All right, let's just pause for a second and, and because I got I to gotta ask you a question. Based on everything that you've seen so far up, up until this slave sale that we've just seen, here's what I'm wondering. Where is God in this? I mean, that's a real question. Where is God in this? Why would God allow this to happen to somebody that he cared about? Why would God allow all this to happen to somebody that he loved? What did Joseph do? I mean, honestly, what did Joseph do to deserve this? Okay, he tattled a little bit. All right, he wore the coat a little bit. Maybe he lacked discretion with, but I mean, his whole future has now been changed. All of the plans that he had for his life have been torn away. From, I mean, in your life, let me ask you a question. In your life, do you find that you look around and maybe you see a, a career that's crumbling. Maybe you look at a child that's, that's wayward and, and life is getting harder and not easier. Do you find yourself saying, I mean, is God in this? I mean, I, I'm a Christian. I go to church. I read the Bible. I give. I volunteer. I understand what Romans 8.28 says. I know that God works all things together for good, but I just, I look around at my life and can God really use this? And what starts to happen is we begin to question our faith because of our circumstances. Story continues. 
Now, Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. And Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, he's the captain of the guard, um, he was the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. So let's just recap the facts so we know where we are. Joseph, betrayed by his brothers, ripped from his homeland. He's all by himself in Egypt. He doesn't know a soul. He's scared. He's hungry. He's dirty. He's fearful about what this master, I mean, what is slavery going to look like? It's just, but then we learn something. In the midst of all this, the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. I wonder if Joseph knew that. Because I think we would look at Joseph's circumstances and I think we would say, if God were actually with Joseph, he'd be at home right now, strutting around in his coat, sipping champagne coolies with the wig master. I mean, in our mind, if God is with you, these things don't happen to you. And if these things start to happen, we begin to think that God is not doing what God ought to be doing. Because we've told ourselves, or we've been told that that sort of God operates in a certain way. And if you're good little boys and girls, everything's going to be just fine. But, But when things start to change, when it looks like God is acting differently, our faith starts to crumble. And the reason our faith start to crumble is we let our circumstances dictate our faith rather than letting our faith inform our circumstances. And I bet dollars to donuts, if we were Joseph, we would think that God abandoned us. We would think that God doesn't care. We would think that God doesn't love us. And yet the Lord was with Joseph. So Joseph finds himself in this new life. He is now a slave. And the scripture says that the Lord of the Joseph, so that he prospered. And he lived in the house of the Egyptian master. Essentially, my read on this could have been worse. I mean, it could have been worse. And in the midst of these circumstances, Joseph, because of God's help, was excelling. I mean, I mean he seemed to be, let's call it thriving, in these adverse circumstances. And it says that when his master saw that the Lord was with him. And I think that's interesting. I mean, this master actually saw this, that this kid was being blessed. And that the Lord gave him success in everything he did. And everything speaks to this idea that clearly Joseph's doing a lot. That Joseph found favor in his eyes. And he became his attendant. So we're starting to get a picture of how Joseph is handling himself in this situation. Because he never imagined he'd be betrayed by his brothers. He never imagined that he'd be sold into slavery. But here he is. And he's made a decision that he wasn't going to wallow in sorrow. He wasn't going to wallow in anger. He believed that God was with him. And with that knowledge, he did the best that he could with the hands that he was dealt. And people noticed. People noticed. You see, people are watching you. I mean, if you are a Christian, let me tell you something. People are watching you. They want to find out how you respond in difficult situations. They want to find out how you react when it gets tough. Because you say you have this powerful God. You say you have this Savior. So let me see how you handle things when things aren't going well. Let me see how you respond in those hard times. And our response will speak volumes about our God to other people. And it says, from the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian. 
because of Joseph. So for the first time, what we're seeing is that God is visibly working things together for Joseph's good. Things are looking up. But as my grandmother once famously said, get those happy shoes off, okay? Get them, let's, let's not get carried away. Get those happy shoes off. Take a look what happens. It says, now, this is a very famous story. Now, Joseph was well-built, okay? And he was handsome. God was a stud. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me, okay? Newsflash. She wasn't interested in just taking a nap, okay? <laughs> so this is, a, this is a very interesting situation that Joseph finds himself in, okay? He finds himself in the midst of a temptation that many find themselves in when they have been beaten down by the world. He finds himself at a crossroads. What's he going to do? How's he going to respond? Because let's just say, right, argument's sake, let's say he decides to sleep with his master's wife. If he decides to sleep with her, he could justify it by the injustice he suffered. He could say, well, look, my brothers betrayed me, stuck here in slavery. My master's getting rich off me. So you know what? Yeah, I'm going to sleep with his wife. Yeah, why not? Why not? What about us? You're slighted by the boss. You're passed over for some promotion. So what do you do? It's like, well, you know what? I'm going to start taking some stuff from the office. Yeah, or you know what? I'm going to start taking more than my fair share of the, of the pool tips at the restaurant. Your spouse, maybe they insult you. What do you do? You head to those websites. And even though your reactionary decisions are unwise, and you know they're unwise, what do you do? You justify it because they owe you. But Joseph because he knew with 100% confidence that God was with him even during this. Refused. He didn't fall for the trap. And his reasoning was that his master has withheld nothing from me except you. Which is very interesting wording because this is exactly what happened in the Garden of Eden. I mean, 39 chapters earlier, God withheld nothing from Adam and Eve except that one tree. Everything that I have is yours, guys, except that. And that's the one thing they want. And here Joseph is some 39 chapters later dealing with that same temptation, that one thing that's off limits. How then could I do such a wicked thing, he says, and sin against my God? I just, honestly, I just find Joseph's unwavering commitment to God amazing. Uh, particularly to a God, I mean, at least in Joseph's mind, who has been seemingly absent during these circumstances. And let's be honest. It's hard to remain faithful to God when he appears to have not been faithful to you. But Joseph continues to view his circumstances through the lens that God is with him. So what does he do? He takes off. He flees from temptation. And it says that when she saw, this is Potiphar's wife, when she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, that would have been a scene, she called her household servants and said, look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came here to sleep with me, 
but I screamed. And then Joseph gets punished for the very thing that he had self-control not to do. I mean, this is the epitome of no good deed goes unpunished. It says that Joseph's master took him and put him in prison. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. At which point, I wonder if Joseph kind of said, uh, God, any chance you could not be with me? <laughs> I mean, I'm not sure this you being with me is really working out well for me. Is, is there any chance, I don't know, just going to put this out there, any chance you could go be with somebody else? Here's an idea. Go be with my brothers. Go spend some time with them for a while. I just wonder if he thinks this. So let me ask you a question. You ever feel like you can't get a break? I, I mean, has there ever been a time in your life when you have been praying? And you've been praying and praying and praying and praying for God to move in your life. And I don't know what you're praying for. Maybe you're praying for a spouse. Maybe you're, maybe you're praying to get pregnant. Maybe you're praying about a job. Maybe you've got some legal battle that's looming over your head all the time. And you are just crying out to the Lord day and night for him to move in your life. And finally, 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 things begin to look up. Finally, you begin to see a light at the end of the tunnel when all of a sudden, boom, everything comes crashing down. It's, it's like all the progress you made, all, all, everything you thought was going to happen comes crashing down again. If you were Joseph, would you have given up? I mean, you might not be in jail right now, but are you in a situation, I mean, is there something going on in your life that you are this close to walking away from God? See, if you're in that situation, there's, there's a promise. The scripture tells us that, that we need to fall back on. It's found in Deuteronomy 31.6, and it says this. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. But see, here's the thing about this promise. It's only when you choose to believe this promise do you see God in the down times. It's only when you choose to trust God do you see God during the difficult storm that you're in? And this is not you manifesting some delusion of God if you believe hard enough. No, the reality is this. Our faith, leaning on God, allows us to see beyond the blinding effects of hardship. And God was with Joseph in that prison. And we read that God showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. And so the warden put Joseph in charge of all those who were held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. Here, here's what this tells us. This lets us know that if you trust that God is with you, you can find kindness and you can find favor in any situation. I mean, obviously prison's not ideal. But Joseph trusted that God was with him even there. And, and, and he was able to view just these small jobs that he can get around the prison as being a blessing of God working in his life. So let me ask you, are you able to see God's blessings in the storm? Can you actually see God's blessings in your storm right now? Are you able to hear God's still small voice in the middle of all of that noise? So time goes by. Joseph's in jail. We don't really know how long it is. But two new prisoners show up. Interesting guys. They work for the Pharaoh. 
the king. One's a cupbearer, okay, wine taster, butler, however you want to call it. The other one's a baker. And these two guys have some dreams. And Joseph, wanting to be used by God even in the midst of this trial, goes to these guys and goes, all right, hey, listen, I can interpret your dreams. I can help you out. What do you got? And I'll spare you the details of the dreams, but here's how Joseph interpreted those dreams. He looks at the one man and he goes, within three days, just got three days in here, my man. Within three days, Pharaoh is going to take you out of prison and give you back your job again as his chief butler. It's like, I got some great news for you. You're, you, my man, you are out of here. And they're jumping for joy and he's hugging Joseph like Joseph's you know, responsible for getting him out of jail. But then Joseph says something very interesting. Take a look at this. And please, have some pity on me when you are back in favor and mention me to Pharaoh and ask him to let me out of here. For I was kidnapped from my homeland among the Hebrews. And now this, here I am in jail when I did nothing to deserve it. See, for the very first time, we get a peek into Joseph's mind. He's not happy in these circumstances, right? He is not blind to the raw deal that he has received. He has not stuck his head into the sand, but he doesn't give up. He keeps fighting for his future, and he sees this cupbearer as his way out of jail. Three days later, as predicted, the cupbearer is released. And we read that the cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. Joseph can't get your break. See, there's going to come a time in your life where it's going to seem like your prayers are not getting through to God. It just seems like as though they're almost just hitting the ceiling and, 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 and bouncing back down. And, and it's as though you just can't seem to find deliverance. And you're going to need to make a decision. Are you going to define God by your circumstances? Are you going to look around at your life and say, things are bad? The job's bad, the economy's bad, my health is bad, my kids are out of control, my marriage is falling apart. God clearly doesn't love me based on what I am seeing around me. Are you going to decide to define God by your circumstances? Or will you make the decision to define God by his promises? You see, we get to make that decision every single day of our lives. Are we going to live our life with the absolute confidence that God is with us. And if you don't believe that, I mean, if you struggle to believe that God is always with you, then some of what Jesus says is going to be impossible to comprehend. It's going to seem unimaginable. Because Jesus, one time, looking at a crowd that was really struggling hard, said to them in John 14, let not your heart be troubled. That's a choice. Let not. Don't let it be troubled. You believe in God? Believe also in me. To which I think the audience, and perhaps even we might say, let not be harpy. Jesus, have you seen what's happening out there? Have you seen the news? It's a mess. Have you seen the economy? Have you seen my job? Have you seen my situation? But the reason Jesus could say things like this is because he lived his life with the utmost confidence that his heavenly father was with him. And he wants us to live our life in the exact same way. He's saying, look, if you live your life with 100% confidence that God's with you, 
then you don't have to let your hearts be troubled. And you can have the peace of knowing that he will work all things together for your good. So, what's the practical? What do you do with a message like this? Well, first of all, it's an amazing story and it ain't over yet. Okay? This week we focused on the downward trend. Next week we're focusing on the upward trend. I cannot wait for that. But I think this story begs us to ask, as I've been saying over and over and over today, it begs every single one of us to ask this question. What does someone in your situation do if they are confident God is with them? I mean, hypothetically, right? Hypothetically. I don't mean you, but hypothetically. What if someone who had your marriage, what would they do if they were confident that God was with them? What would someone who is struggling with your kids do if they were confident that God was with them? What would someone who is struggling with your financial situation or your job situation, what would they do if they were confident that God is with them? And when you begin to view your situation through the lens that God is really with you, and and you do the things that someone would do if he were, you will see God working. You will see him in the midst of those downtimes, and others will see God through you. Next week, like I said, the tables turn. Redemption happens, that glorious deliverance, you are not going to want to miss it. Let me close this out in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for the opportunity that we could come here today, even if it is on the internet, to be with one another and to study your word. God, this is such an important story for us to spend some time on and hearing. And I I am so grateful that you've allowed this story to be preserved for 4,000 years. God, every single one of us is going through things, some of us more than others at this moment. But life can be scary. Life can get dark, Lord. And, And when our circumstances, when we don't understand what's happening around us, God, when we start to get afraid, our faith can begin to crumble, Lord. And I pray that right now, I pray that right now by the power of the Holy Spirit that every single person would have the confidence to know that you are with them, that you are working perhaps behind the scenes this moment, orchestrating something for their good, that they do not have to let their hearts be troubled, that they can be in peace knowing that you are in control, that you have a plan, that there is deliverance right around the corner. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.